So, how exactly did I turn out okay in the end? Hi, welcome to another episode of Business Mindset Mastery. My name is Heather Gray, and I'm a mindset and performance coach over at choosetohaveitall.com, and I think that might be my most obnoxious title for a podcast episode yet. Let me tell you why I called it that. Last week, I did an episode for you where I asked you and challenged you to start choosing happiness in a very specific, tactile way in your own life, to start noticing, counting, paying attention to, and recognizing the green lights in your life. I thought it was a good episode. I thought I gave you know some snazzy points and hopefully connected with all of you on it. What I didn't know and what I didn't pay attention to or I didn't expect were the emails I would get in response to the episode. At the end of the episode, I sort of prattled on about a little bit about my own life and I shared with you some things I'd overcome, lived through, survived, if you will, and people thought I was disrespecting my own story, that I was using critical life events and offering them as an aside. Um, Somebody asked me if I was afraid to talk about the hard stuff if I didn't recognize that sometimes people don't just want to know about the ending, they want to know how you got there. It was five or six emails, and normally, I got to tell you, I get maybe two or three, and usually none sometimes on some weeks for some shows. So I knew that that episode had gotten a reaction, and I knew the way I had presented my story as an aside might have missed the mark. It seems like a really good time to tell you the story of how it's turned out okay for me. Yesterday was the 35th anniversary of my mom's passing. I was six years old and my sister was two and she died of breast cancer. Uh, She was 31 years old. She got diagnosed when she was 30 and she died when she was 31. Back then, breast cancer took you really quickly. And um, now that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, it's even more poignant for me to share this story with you now. I try to think about what the listener you want to hear. Um, What are the details that matter? What are the details that are self-indulgent? What are the details that you really don't give a shit about? And honestly, I'm not quite sure. The only way I know how to tell the story is to tell it the way I remember it. So I guess I'm just going to start talking, and you're going to have a listen, and hopefully you'll have a takeaway or two that gets you where you wanted to go when you heard about the story the first time at the end of that last episode. So I was six years old, and honestly, I don't remember a lot about that initial time. I remember some of the specifics, like I remember that I didn't ever really know my mom was sick until she was in the hospital. But at one point, I was staying with my best friend and her family. My sister was staying with a different family. And my dad was with my mom, uh, probably at the hospital full time from what I can remember. And I remember visiting her at the hospital. I remember how scary the machine seemed, how loud the beeping was, um, the really distinct smell. Um, I'd had spinal meningitis when I was a kid, and I'd also been born with a cleft palate, so I had seen my fair share of hospitals, and I think that that hospital smell reminded me of when I got sick and how scared I was, because I remember just making sure my mom wasn't scared. I remember asking her if the machines hurt. I remember 
everybody kind of looking at me, but nobody talking to me, right? Because you can, I can kind of look back on it now and understand that they probably all knew the situation, but I didn't. So they knew they were watching the last moments between a mother and daughter. And I'm sure the room was filled with sadness that I couldn't comprehend, but I just wanted to make sure my mom wasn't scared. That's one of the most prominent memories that sticks out for me. Stay tuned. I'm going to keep talking on the other side of this. I also remember how much my dad tried to help us laugh and smile in the hospital room. The doctors and nurses were kind enough to turn off the sounds of the machines while I was there, and the room became less scary, and I remember him bringing in those giant wax lips, and some of you may be too young to remember it. I haven't seen them in a really long time, but they're just these silly fake wax lips that people would put on their faces to make themselves look like they had these really big, fat, you know, uh, Jessica Rabbit kind of... Uh, lips. There I went. I used another aging reference. Some of you may not even know who Jessica Rabbit is. But anyway, I digress. And then I remember the moment that they told me they that my mom was going to die. I remember my mom and dad telling me, I don't remember anybody else in the room. My sister was only two, so I don't actually remember her in the hospital too much. And I remember having this image that I needed to make it okay for everybody. So when they asked me that if I was scared, I said no, that if, you know, mom couldn't get better, that it was okay, that I would be okay. Um, I just remember trying to be my bravest, strongest version of myself. Um, I think I made some kind of Wonder Woman reference, you know, the Linda Carter Wonder Woman too, by the way. and I, yeah, I, I just remember trying to be okay. And then after we left the hospital, I got in the car with my dad and I started crying. And he told me it was okay to be sad. Um, and I told him I was feeling bad. And I told him it was because I had lied, that I really was scared and that I didn't know what I was going to do, and I didn't understand what was going on, and that it was all very scary. And I remember my dad hugging me, telling me it would be okay. And I don't remember very much after that until one morning I got up, and I was super proud of myself for getting all dressed up for school all by myself um, and coming down the stairs and people there telling me that I didn't need to go to school that day because my mom had died. And I remember a lot of people being sad, and I'm sure I cried, but I don't remember feeling the hit. You know, we we talk about loss and grief, and we talk about um, just that that initial moment of impact. And it might have been my age. It might just be that so many years have passed, but I don't remember feeling the hit. Like, oh, my goodness this is forever, or my life is going to change. And I remember the events around the wake and funeral being really scary. And then the next thing I remember is getting a lot of attention simply because I was the kid whose mom had died. I showed up for school whenever I went back, and suddenly everybody wanted to be my friends. They told me how they had made the announcement over the loudspeaker at school, so the whole school knew. I remember being given the look 
um, and probably pity, sadness, compassion. But when you're that little and you don't understand why everybody knows your personal business that happens in your house, it's really confusing and it's really scary. But I don't remember being upset. I, I don't remember grieving. I don't remember being super sad. I remember the weekly trips to the cemetery after church to visit my mom's grave for a while. But the thing that sticks out is that was the moment I started to lie. That, that day in the hospital when I said I wasn't scared, that was the first time I lied to get a reaction from the people around me. And it wasn't the last time. It didn't take me long to realize that being the kid whose mom died got you a lot of breaks. I could play any card I wanted and get out of trouble any way I wanted to. I could tell kids at school any story and suddenly I would have friends. And when I look back on those first years without my mom, I, I just, all I remember is that I used her death to get attention and to make friends. That's what I remember. And I wish I could tell you that I kind of got over it by first grade, second grade, or third grade, but I was a liar all the way until seventh grade, until junior high. I would make up stories to I don't know, to entertain kids, to tell kids what I thought they would want to hear, to get out of trouble in class, for all kinds of reasons and for anything and everything. And my guess is, is that, you know, the shrink in me knows that I created some sort of fantasy life, probably so I didn't have to deal with the reality life. But I also think that I just became a really manipulative kid that I used it as a situation to advance myself and better myself. And when I figured out that that's who I had become later on down the line, I had a lot to make up for with myself. I had a lot of self-forgiveness and a lot of self-compassion. But mostly in elementary school, I was the kid who lied and nobody knew. I didn't get busted, like really busted, for my first lie until junior high, and it was at a very public event. I had lied about um, my, this girl in junior high was super, super popular, um, and everybody liked her, and I wanted to be friends with her, and she and her family had just become foster a foster family for a kid, and for some reason I made up a story that my family was about to start fostering a kid too, and we had this in common and everybody liked me and it was great until we had some sort of event in the evening after school and that girl's parents went up to my dad and said oh I hear you're fostering too and everybody just looked at me and stared when he said no I have no idea what you're talking about and that was when my reality had caught up to me that humiliating moment of everybody staring at me and everybody knowing that I was a liar, I was a fake, I was a fraud. And they started poking around at other stories and my past came up to bite me in one god-awful week in junior high. And it was 
maybe, I don't know, the days run together when you look back at it that long ago, right? But I remember by that time, my dad had remarried. I didn't have the best relationship with my stepmother. And I woke up and we were getting ready to go to school. And she got on me because I had my hairbrush on the wrong dresser in my bedroom. And I don't know what it was about that. It is, by the way, a totally obnoxious request. If a kid has a hairbrush on a dresser, like, be glad and be happy and take one for the team. She was nitpicking a little bit too much. But I just remember a day in seventh grade when I started crying and couldn't stop. And it was this moment of realization that my mom had died and she wasn't coming back. That death was permanent. I probably knew it before seventh grade, right? Like I was aware of it, but I don't think I knew or was conscious that that meant my whole life was gonna be different. And I cried on the way to school. I cried through homeroom. I could not stop crying. And I would say that's when depression and I started to get to know one another. I never really identified myself as a depressed person. I never thought of myself as somebody who had a lot of problems as a kid. I was by seventh grade, I, again, I was the kid who had used her mom's death to get attention and to make friends. And I, I don't think I made that connection at the time because you're young and you're in junior high that all of that is connected to sadness. So finally crying and crying, I found myself in my guidance counselor's office. Her name was Miss Hoyt and she became one of the most pivotal people in my life. And I remember sitting in her office and saying, my mom died, my mom died. And just saying it over and over again, crying and crying and asking her when I was gonna run out of tears because it didn't feel like it was gonna stop. And she said that I had made a really good start that day. And if you're struggling, if you're hurting, if you're holding back tears all the time, I can tell you that I didn't start getting better until I started crying. And now I'm a natural born crier. I cry at the Hallmark commercials. I cry at the sad songs on the radio. I've been known to have to pull over a time or two when the songs are particularly emotional. But I'm in touch with that side of myself because of a day in seventh grade when I started crying and I couldn't stop. I wish I could tell you it got all better that day, that I talked it out and I moved on, but that's not the story, and you probably knew that already. Sadness, loneliness, isolation, a sense of being different and being left out followed me all the way through high school. Um, I was the sad kid all the time. I was always upset about something. And again, I think that was a little on the manipulative side of life. I think again, I still had this really bad ingrained habit 
pattern and behavior of using my sad story to get attention. That's probably why the other day I just said it as an aside and blew it off because I never again want to be that person. I never again want to use sadness for acclaim. I've learned, of course, over time that stories connect and stories resonate and stories bring people together. But I know without a doubt the difference between using story to manipulate to, for better good of the self and better for connection. And for a really long time, I was doing it all wrong. And I was doing it for the acclaim. I was doing it to be in the spotlight, to get people to feel bad about me. And for all that time, I was depressed. It followed me straight through my freshman year in college when I was finally on my own and I wanted to reinvent myself. I didn't have to be the kid whose mom died. I didn't have to be the liar who got exposed. I didn't have to be the super nerdy kid who always was studying. I got to start over. And I made a tremendous connection with a really good group of people, but they were depressed and they wrapped themselves in their misery. And it was all over again. Suddenly, my sad story is what connected me to other people. The thing that I wanted to run away from, the thing that I wanted to start over, there it was again, right in front of me. And I fell into depression that freshman year too. It got me again as much as I tried to run away from it. It followed me. It was like my ghost. I couldn't get rid of it. I had been in therapy the whole time through high school and I got myself in therapy again in college. Here's where it starts to get better. At some point in time during that first semester in college, I realized that I didn't want to live at home the entire summer, that I, as much as I was still struggling with low self-esteem, a lack of confidence, and all the other things tied up with the depression bow, I really liked living on my own. And I got myself a job at a sleepaway camp for kids in Department of Social Services. So they would come and spend two-week sessions, usually while their parents were, you know, dealing with court issues or foster care or something like that. But I was working with really troubled kids who had been emotionally abused, physically abused, exposed to gang violence, exposed to you know, drug paraphernalia, some had been born drug addicted, the whole nine. And that's the summer that I saved my life, I think. Um, these kids were rough and tumble, the kind that anybody else would give up on. And there was one boy one day, like on the first or second night of the first session, and he got on top of a jungle gym and he refused to get down. And there were a bunch of hapless, idiotic camp counselors at the bottom staring up at him, wondering how the heck they were going to get him down. And on pure instinct, having no clue what I was doing, I climbed the jungle gym and sat on top with him and started to talk. And I looked and I said, oh, it's peaceful up here. And he said, yes, kids are really loud sometimes. And we started talking, and I helped him down the playground, uh, down the jungle gym set, and he went off to bed. And suddenly I was good at something. Suddenly 
I had a new identity. I wasn't my story. I wasn't what happened to me. I wasn't the things I did, the regrets I had, the embarrassments that I couldn't shake off and let go of. Suddenly, I had insight. And I remember being up all night, just reveling in the fact that I was the one who got this kid down the playground. And it wasn't hard. It was easy for me. And I was good at it. And I had a summer of being really good with the hard to reach kids. And I showed up on the first day of sophomore year in college, a different person. I had suddenly tuned in to my capability. Does that sound familiar now? You've heard me say it a lot in recent episodes. That's how I learned that lesson, that we're not what happens to us. We're not the stories and the things we endure, the feelings, all of that. They're chapters in our story, but we don't have to define ourselves by them. I wrapped myself up in the victimhood of being a motherless daughter for years. I made it my identity. It was, hi, I'm Heather. My mom died when I was six. Hi, I'm Heather. I had a cleft palate and I had several operations. Hi, I'm Heather. I'm 20 years old. And do you know how many operations I've had? Hey, Heather, I, you know over and over and over again. It was my list of stories of things that I had gone through that I had dealt with that had happened to me. When the list became things that I had done and I tacked on a second summer of being awesome with kids that everyone else gave up on, my confidence built even more. I was getting a 4-0 in school Quite frankly, I found it easy. I think psychology and me get along pretty well. It wasn't that hard. And suddenly the thing I had experienced was helping me be really good at something. And that connection was the beginning of everything getting better. A funny thing happens when you start to find yourself. The people around you who haven't yet found themselves really don't know what to do with you. I had collected friends who were all victims too. Life had happened to them and they were defining themselves by their sad stories. And I went back sophomore year and I really liked myself. I liked who I was and I liked my life. I. I was happy again. I wasn't depressed anymore. And suddenly I found myself surrounded by depressed people. And I remember this thing that I used to do in college and I would call them me days. And I would just write on the wipe off board of my door, um, gone out for the day for a me day, we'll be back whenever. And it was basically letting friends know, like, I'm gone for the day, don't expect me back. And I would wander around Boston, and I, I ended up having, it's funny, I'm always a creature of habit. I look back at that time and go, wow, I, I was me even then. But I had my things I liked to do. I would go to the Copley Movie Theater, and I'd see a movie. I'd have lunch at the Prudential Center in their court, food court, and then I'd wander around Newberry Street and have an ice cream cone. But I would make it a day by myself. Um, and I would 
just spend time by myself in the city. And on one particular day, I came back to the dorm room and checked my voicemail. Remember those days when <laughs> the phones weren't immediate? And it was friend after friend, Heather, where are you? I needed to talk. Heather, come by my room when you get back. I really had a bad day. Heather, Heather. And it was this moment that I realized if I wanted to really enjoy the happiness I had found, the confidence I had found, I needed to make more changes. I couldn't just change me because I was surrounding myself with toxic people. And in one epic night, that people, they gave it a nickname. I wish I could remember and tell you what it was. Um, I went door to door, and each person who had left me a voicemail, I let them know that I liked myself again and that I wanted to be happy, and I didn't think they wanted the same for themselves, and I couldn't be friends with people who didn't want to be happy. I could be friends with people who were sad and wanting to be happy, but people who weren't trying, who wanted to wrap themselves up in their depression and be a victim to their lives, wasn't going to be good for me and the person I wanted to be. And I ended, I think, four friendships in an hour. They started <laughs> calling each other as if I was like on the warpath. Has Heather come by your room yet? Has Heather come by your room yet? And I started over because I knew that life would get better. I knew that I could change the course of my story. And it was this moment of knowing that came sophomore year <laughs> in college. Just I got to decide. I couldn't be happy around toxicity. And you can't be happy around toxicity either. We can manage toxic people. We can set boundaries around them. We can make sure we we're walled off and they can't get in. But if you're struggling with feeling better, you want to think about who you're spending your time with. Because if you're spending your time with other people who complain, who are miserable, who are downtrodden, who wrap themselves up in victimhood and their stories and their depression, it's really hard to get out. It's really hard to feel better when you're completely surrounding yourself in misery. So how do people become victims anyway? I have a theory about that, and I think it comes down to unmet needs. When people have stories and things that have happened to them that cause critical needs of human development and human relationships to go unmet, Sometimes their development pauses at the point of impact. At the moment the need goes unmet, they can't really function without it. So they stay still, they stay stuck, and they stay frozen. And when I look back on how I've achieved health and how I've been able to make choosing happiness a part of my path, it comes down to a critical understanding that our needs are non-negotiable. Now, what do needs have to do with this story? Well, the obvious is, is I needed a mom. I needed somebody I could talk to, who could mentor me, who could guide me, um, 
who would love me unconditionally, all of those things that moms are supposed to give their kids and kids deserve to have, a lot of those needs had gone on mat for me for a really long time. And a lot of times I think when people look at that story and that version of events, it becomes you have to accept that that happened and moved on. And yeah, obviously, I've accepted that my mom has passed, and I've obviously moved on, and I've made really good peace with it. But here's the thing. It didn't start to get better for me until I was willing to see that even though my mom couldn't meet those needs, didn't mean that I had to live with them unmet. The things that moms can do aren't limited to the mom we're biologically connected to. There were other people who moved through my world and in my space who wanted to love me unconditionally, who wanted to mentor me, who wanted to support me on my bad days, who wanted to hear about my hopes and dreams. I had to be willing to get the needs met by somebody other than my mom. I had to be willing to compromise on how the need was met so that the need would be met. And when we stay stuck and we stay down, it's usually because we're in a stubborn fight over unmet needs. And when we can open ourselves up to compromise on how those needs get met, we start to become our new version of new like our new version of normal or our new version of being whole. But when we stay broken and we don't let the cracks get filled, we get stubborn. Don't you know this happened to me? Don't you know what I've been through? You haven't seen life the way I've seen life. And we get wholly defensive about our personal experiences and what we've been through. But when we realize that we can measure the loss a little bit, we don't have to lose everything. 35 years ago, I lost my mom, but I didn't lose the ability to be mothered. I've had mentors in my life, my guidance counselor, therapist, um, a supervisor at work for several years I felt was very much a mother figure to me. I have... Um, my husband's grandmother is such a dear and loves me ridiculously. I have friends who have had my back. I've had friends' mothers who have looked after me a time or two when I needed an ear and have been there. There have been moms everywhere I've looked as long as I was willing to look for them to show up in a different picture. It's a painful compromise but the compromise is a choice. Who we are and what we do with what life hands us is entirely up to us. We're gonna have to get help along the way. We're gonna get lost. I was the most lost child in childhood. I really just couldn't find my way. We're gonna stumble, we're gonna make god-awful mistakes we have to live with and reconcile with and forgive ourselves for and ask for forgiveness for. But at some point, at any point, we can stop and say, this is not how my story is going to end. I'm starting a new chapter. It comes down to a choice.
I probably could have just skipped to that part part for some of you, but I hope the story matters, and I hope the story I shared today helps you see how to connect the dots. You have to feel it. You have to tune into your ability. You have to create an environment for health, and you have to be willing to get your needs met and really creative in alternative ways sometimes in order to be whole again. We can't control what happens to us. I couldn't control the fact that my mom died. Couldn't control the fact that I didn't have a good relationship with my stepmother after. There was a lot in that that I couldn't control. But I could get good grades. I could set myself up for success in my future. I could take advantage and say yes to opportunities, find friends who made me a better, bigger, bolder version of myself instead of the ones who wanted me to stay small and down. I could allow myself to be loved unconditionally by someone other than my mom. I could decide that I was going to do my best to live a life she'd be proud of and that I would say yes and choose happiness every moment I had the choice to do so. And those choices are in front of you too. If you're stuck and lost and you have no idea how, please reach out. Find me at heather at choosetohaveitall.com. I'm happy to answer your question on a podcast, but as you know, some of this stuff goes a bit deeper. And if you need my help one-on-one, I'd love to have a conversation with you about how I can help you get to the other side. Because when we build ourselves up, we get ready to build our businesses. They go hand in hand and we can't run away to our businesses. We have to tend to house and home and get ourselves set up for success personally. And I love the opportunity to help you get there. Thanks for listening in. I hope you haven't found it too indulgent and that you have a takeaway or two. And if you want to tell me your story, find me over at Facebook. I have a group there, Choose to Have It All. I'd love to hear what you think about this episode and what your takeaway is. If you enjoy what I'm doing and putting out there, please do take the time to leave a review, subscribe to the show, and share it on social media. It's my best chance at connecting with people and getting the word out about who I am, what I do, and how I serve. Thanks for joining me today. I'm not going to be with you tomorrow. I'll be taking the day off from podcasting tomorrow, but I'll be back in your earballs on Thursday. Thanks so much and have a great day.